This is Omo. Antonio Stradivari wrote several drafts before having it secretly notarized. The family would have to wait in mystery. And wait they did. Antonio was in his 90s before he departed. He outlived two wives and several children. Of the 11 born, only five were able to see that will. There was Katerina, married off to another family. There was Giuseppe, the priest. Paolo, he made his way as a cloth merchant, and two remaining brothers. They had spent their lives with their father every day in that workshop. Two brothers, neither ever married, both in their later years as well. To my son, Francesco, I name you master owner of the workshop. To you belong the storeroom and all of its contents and the room where I sleep, where I am now. To my son, Omobono, you will receive the same dispensation as my other children, minus that $2,000 debt you incurred those 40 years ago in Naples. This is our beloved, Omo. All right. Hi, Rosie. Hi, Chris. How's it going? <laughs> I'm very happy to be doing this. I'm very excited to be doing this with you. <laughs> Uh, this is Rosie Deloach. Hello, and I'm talking with Chris Jacoby. Hi, everybody. Across sea and air, you're coming to me from Tacoma Park, a little bit north of uh, D.C., right? Yeah, that's right. Tacoma Park, Maryland. Uh, so I, I work here managing the workshop, and I'm resident luthier at Potter Violins. Yes, and you are. you are coming to us from Texas, from Caraway Strings. Yes, it's uh, in the back room of my shop, uh, just a little bit north of Dallas and first suburb of Richardson. So you're in the back room of your shop, right? Now. I am. I am. I've got it nicely padded and my dog's here with me. If you just heard him kicking himself and hey, Ollie, yeah. hey, bud, he's hanging I'm, out back here. I am literally in the closet. Uh, <laughs> I call this the uh, the Studio 22K. Um, mm -hmm. And it is very cozy. There's a lot of pillows. Um, and I'm ready to to talk about some stuff with you. Talk about the violin and violin making. Okay, let's do it. All right. So we, yeah, we, uh, we're doing this podcast called OMO. O-M-O. OMO. Yeah. And we have some stories for you. We have a season planned out. And hopefully it's stuff that you love. Hopefully if you are a luthier or you just enjoy... Uh, working with your hands or appreciate people who do. If you're mm -hmm. anyone in this field who plays a violin, wants to play a violin. If you're fascinated with yeah. how and why instruments get made, or mm -hmm. if you're like me, that at one point you looked around and said, oh, wait, people make these. They don't, they don't come out of a machine somewhere, you know, fully formed. Yeah, they, yeah. they have to be made and, and adjusted and kept in good health. Yeah, 
Uh, so this is this is for you, and we hope that you enjoy it. Welcome. Welcome. So, so we started with Stradivari. Um, yeah. That's an obvious great reading, Rosie. Oh, thank you. It's an obvious place to start because, um, I mean, everyone knows who Strad was. And that, that abbreviation, I mean, you, you knew who Strad was before your family was into the violin business, right? I have a distinct memory before I thought I would have anything to do with violins. My mother was a player. I was mm. probably 10 and looked inside her violin and said, Mom, it's a Stradivarius. We can retire. Yeah. And <laughs> <laughs> my, uh, my first run in with a Strad, uh, I was very lucky to go to Paul Bartel's shop in uh cincinnati area the baroque violin shop my dad played mm -hmm. french horn with him in a community orchestra and i think he loved to do this for the effect but uh mm -hmm. he pulled his strad which uh i want to say the lady farnsworth and that's mm -hmm. gonna be off but it was a, a long period late 1690 strad and he handed it to me and i was about the same age rosie i was about 10 and then mm -hmm. he left the room and i was supposed to try it and i just stood there you know so terrified you're, you're talking about an actual strad yeah okay and yeah. i'm talking about all the others that just have a label in it like most of us encounter and we well, think that it's a strad i didn't mean to one-up you it just happened uh, <laughs> organically you know <laughs> well but, your story also reminds me of uh we're going to get into this but my father is the reason that i am in the violin business Mm -hmm. um, he did the same thing with me, just with a gun. He just put a gun in my hand yes. and then said, oh, be careful, it's loaded after it was in my hand. <laughs> uh-huh. I mean, that's, yeah. that's, about, that's about the same as the Strats part. <laughs> <It> was... <laughs> well, I mean, if we're talking about how we got into this, um, yeah. I mean, I, I consider myself a violin maker. I don't often use the word luthier, only because there are connotations attached to it which I have felt in uncomfortable ways, as well as in ways that give me pride. Uh -huh. um, I mean, what do you think of when you, when you hear the word luthier or luthier? For me, I am someone who works on violins. I'm someone who does repair and restoration, Love but I have not made one from scratch. So I'm very careful using that word because I have that feeling in the back of my head that that should be relegated to the makers. <laughs> yeah. yeah while we look down our noses at you yeah. and your little fixie shop it's yeah. and that's yeah. exactly it um and you feel that because there is definitely a a culture which is less offensive every year which is less overbearing mm -hmm. and some of that might be because as you're in the culture you notice that it's your own insecurities and not actually that everyone is mm -hmm. looking down on each other but there is an expectation there and a reality of, uh, uh, what's, I mean, what's, what's the phrase for it? What's the word for it? It's uh, your favorite phrase of, of noblesse oblige. Oh yeah. I love it when you say that. Oh, I just say it over and over. <laughs> it's, uh, you've said that probably 10 times and I still don't know what it means. <laughs> it is, it is uh, you know, if you happen past my horse and bump my shoe, okay. I decide... I won't hit her with my whip. I will give her half of a penny instead. Noblesse oblige. I see. I yeah, see. you got off without getting hit with a whip there. So it's so royal. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> got it. Um, so it, I started in this business um, 
I mean, after high school, I was determined to be a wandering gypsy and have something to write about. And I hit Central America and then the West Coast of the United States um, with my grandfather's Heberline violin, which he ordered from the Sears catalog for $12 Perfect. Uh, in the, the first 20 years of the, of the 20th century. Um, and I played on street corners and I played outside organic farmers markets and uh, like wild oats and uh, whole foods. That's where the money's at. I mean, if you can stand oh, in the sure. sun, whew, those people love a violinist, even a, you know, a, a half decent violinist, which um, I have always had great enthusiasm. Full they've stop. done their, they've done their yoga. Yeah. They've got their green smoothie. And they're, they're like, ready I to really want to hear somebody play box second partita, yeah. pitchy and too fast. Well chosen, sir. Yeah. So I, I was making a circuit of doing that. Um, and I found myself north of San Francisco in 1999, 2000. Um, and I was doing some work for uh, some studios, session work, um, making hip hop albums with a friend with classical music as what was being mixed in. Um, and playing out a lot. And uh, I was really invested in the violin as something which defined me or something that was part of me that made me feel like myself in the world, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, I started fixing them here and there as, as happens. Somebody says, oh, well, I've got a violin that has this problem or it has seams open. And uh, as everyone does, I hope... Um, I made some questionable choices. Do um, you remember your first repair? Uh, my first quote repair, unquote, Rosie, was mm -hmm. uh, getting a fairly nice Mark Nekerkin violin from a friend um, whom I played in a band with and uh, stripping the varnish off with 220 grit <gasps> sandpaper. From That the was the first one you did? God, it was. <laughs> So very, I, I try not to do things halfway, you know, <laughs> completely to the wood. And then um, at that point, I think I I drew like a mermaid and a moon on the front and then refinished it. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's with that's, marker. You like you drew the mermaid. <laughs> yeah, it was it was a it was a Sharpie. I it love was a it. fine tip Sharpie, though. It had a fine tip. Ladies um, and gentlemen, the fine restoration violin maker, <laughs> Chris Jacoby. We need to find that violin. Oh, oh well, uh, Otis Scarecrow, if you're listening, my brother, if you're out there, if you're still <laughs> playing shows and refusing to cut your beard somewhere in Marin County, California, we'd like to see a picture of the, <laughs> the first repair I did. Uh, yes. Uh, well, forgive me. And uh, as one must, I have tried my best to be aware of, meet, and then learn more um, standards, of course, since that day. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I thought the mermaid looked pretty good hanging out on the moon, but disrespecting instruments is a, a sure way to get off on the wrong foot when you're considering creatures that are going to outlive you by many hundreds of years, by many generations. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. That that reminds me of early on in my days, uh, being very excited to sign my name mm -hmm. inside the instrument. And the older I get, I don't want to leave a trace. <laughs> the, you you the remember more I those know. signatures and cringe. Oh, yeah. 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 Like I put a cleat in this one cleat. 
one cleat and i and it was so lopsided <laughs> and thick yeah <laughs> so we we start somewhere and then you get the madness you know you get the taste for it and uh i uh, unfortunately, I was I was sharing a, a band space with a lot of people. Now that I think back on it, it was a lot of people. Um, and somebody in a band I didn't even play with, but that shared the space as well, uh, got pretty strung out and sold a bunch of stuff out of the shared space. And uh, I was running around being a gypsy mm -hmm. and my grandfather's violin uh, got taken to a pawn shop and mm -hmm. and hawked. So I had to get that back, um, which was unpleasant. And uh, that was sort of a moment for me, Rosie. That was a moment when I looked around and I, I said to myself, you know, I'm not on tour with a rock and roll band, which I was sure was going to happen by 22. Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's what happens when you rock. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so I, I went to the library and I Googled violin making, violin fixing, and I found the VMSA, the Violin Making School of America in Salt Lake City. And I wrote an email to Big P. Preer and asked if there were slots available the next year. And the rest is very sane, non-turbulent history. Right? So you, you put yourself in school. And from what I understand, you guys start all the way from scratch. You go into the forest, you fell a tree, mm -hmm. and you make an instrument. Yeah, and well, we fell the tree halfway through the first year. So we're covering the bases, but they don't like make you use whatever wood you found at a gouge point that year, thankfully. Okay. okay. Um, I do have a couple of tops. I know Colin Gallahue has a couple too from the first tree that we felled my, my first year and uh, they're fantastic. And it was, okay. it was Engelman spruce up above Heber, Utah. Mm -hmm. um, we started the morning by felling what we were told and were sure was a mountain mahogany until Cameron Robertson and I looked around at each other holding a chainsaw and we're like, that smells like cedar. So we murdered a perfectly good cedar tree. Aww. And left it there. And then we wandered <laughs> off and, and we found a great, great tree. Um, and the wood was, it grew straight and it had been on the side of a mountain up where it's cold in the winter. So all the sap gets pulled down. It was dead standing and it <laughs> rung when you hit it with the back of the axe. Uh, and I mean, uh, violin awesome. making school was wild. It was, uh -huh. it was a really great time. Um, and our, our mutual friend, Jerry Lynn, uh, who's creeping around here somewhere. Hi, Jerry. Hey, Jerry. Hey, man. Just stay outside till we need you, okay? Yeah. Just, it's going to be all right. I know it's raining. Uh, he, he said to me that uh, he has always enjoyed the Salt Lake City graduates and attendees um, because we are wonderful, marvelous, damaged human beings. <laughs> How <laughs> and, did they uh, know to pick you? I don't know. It just works out that way. You get there and everybody has a nice flannel. Okay. And there's a long board next to them and they've got a beard and uh even the girls. Oh yeah. Oh, it's, it's they're like the the dwarves in Lord of the Rings. Like mm -hmm. that's why nobody thinks they're lady dwarves because of the beards. <laughs> No, no. Um, there are a few emails I'm going to get about I'm, that. Comment. I've met some <laughs> beautiful female luthiers. I uh, I have 
Lady Luthier heroes and Lady Luthier colleagues um, from Salt Lake City and everywhere else um, that I'm sorry I said you all have beards. <laughs> I know it's just the lighting and the photos we're taking. <laughs> so, so we get there and uh, uh, we start making a violin and not necessarily from the wood we, we felled, but um, I'd never held a tool. I am inherently ADD and impatient and full of passion and art, but have a hard time reining my hands in to do what my, my mind is and my standards are telling them to do. Um, so I was not a great student. I was not somebody you would have pointed at and gone, now there's a violin maker to watch Rosie DeLoach. Really? No, okay. you would have pointed at me and gone, why is he here? Does he need to get and back on his longboard? Yeah, yeah, I do. I'm going to go right after we're done recording. <laughs> but it, it was uh, it was a matter of stubbornness and about being honest with myself. Um, I'd never really finished anything, and I wanted to get through to where I could say I am a violin maker. And maybe that's, that's the line that's hard to reach because mm -hmm. you get – we've been talking about imposter syndrome a lot, you and I. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, talking about how – you feel when you do something that has your self-worth on the table in front of you, you feel that you can't possibly trust your own instincts about how well you're doing. And you can't possibly stand up to this giant, exquisite system that, that we're a part of, of yeah. just rife with perfectionists. Mm -hmm. Or possibly what I think we're going to find by talking about this stuff rife with people that are desperately faking it because they think that same thing. They desperately think that perfection is all around them, like a cloak weighing yeah. on them when they make decisions about what to post on their Instagram, when they make decisions about how to interact with a client or how to feel proud of themselves for doing good work and doing good work fast or well or appropriately, you, you think that that will is being read in the next room. Yeah. And you're Oma Bono, and you just found out you're getting shit for money from dad <laughs> because you didn't meet that perfect standard, you know? And that's, uh, I didn't ever shake it, but I came to a place where I believed what, um, Ray Melanson said to me the third time he saw me at a VSA, I had shown him my instrument and asked him for notes. And I was very, very forward about asking people whose work I admired for notes on my instruments and trying to absorb it and trying to grow to the point where it didn't kill me internally to grow a callus on, on having shit talk to me about my violin. So the thing that you crafted from your hands, you're presenting to someone else to say, yeah, you didn't really quite get those curves right. That varnish exactly. is messed up right there. And the first 10 times it burns. Sure. And then the thousandth time you learn to draw the positive out. But he looked at me and he raised an eyebrow and he said, Chris, at some point, this is good for networking, but... You're going to have to be proud enough of yourself mm -hmm. to know when to say thank you and in your head go, no, 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 I'm not, not listening to this joker. Like, okay, I made my decision here. <laughs> so 
getting there is perhaps the the point at which the key turns and I could say to myself, I am a violin maker. Yeah. You, you I mean, should. This is... You're a violin maker. How, how many instruments have you made now? Um, finished 136. Yeah, yeah I, think, and, uh... I think that qualifies you. <laughs> I, yeah. I know people who have made two and they're violin makers. They're violin makers. It, well, and it counts. <laughs> Guess what? I am whatever 136 divided by two is times more of a violin maker than them. That's a lot of math for me. That's how I do math. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, how'd you get into this? You've got a wonderful business. Um, Thank you. You're doing more and more restoration. Um, yeah. You know, having a successful shop is a path that a lot of people who want to call themselves violin makers could not handle. Well, thank How'd you, you for saying that. Yeah. I, I am, when I look back at my path, uh, it's very easy for me to say that I fell into it. This is a, a, something that I, I tell myself. Um, you tripped into I it. I tripped into it. Now, there was a... Uh, there was a way for me to, to start that I tripped into, but I had to keep working. So my um, father, he was retiring from a city job that he didn't really love. Mm -hmm. And my mother was an orchestra teacher in the area. And she would come home telling stories about uh, kids trying to afford their, what, $40 a month payment for a violin. Yeah. And, uh, and the instrument wasn't set up well and the bridge was already broken and glued in place. So but, they're stifled know. by these instruments. Yeah, she was just really upset with the, the amount of money that these kids were paying. They could barely afford it, and it was junk. And so my dad was bored and thought he would just take out a loan, get some instruments, and see what happened. Uh, at the time, I was, I was right between like junior high and high school, and he just started, uh, he would like uh, do a splice through our landline so we could get calls. And uh, we would like just take calls out of the phone. We would, this was back in the day before we like didn't even do credit card payments on the phone. We For just, the business, like in yeah. your kitchen? Nice. Yeah, in our nice. kitchen yeah, during yeah. the back to school rush, we would have <laughs> some of my friends come over after school and we'd answer the phones together and take orders. And the next day, my dad would get in the car and go deliver violins. And then over the summers, they would come back and I would sit in the garage and I would watch reruns of like the Munsters and clean violins. <laughs> <laughs> and we knew as much as anyone would know if their mother was an or orchestra teacher. And she's a violinist? Yeah. As well? yeah, yeah, she's a violinist. Yeah. But as far as repair work, we learned by messing up. We, oh, yeah. there, was, there were so many mechanics that it took us years to figure out like, oh, you need to have a sound post this place underneath the bridge. Oh, the bridge should be this height for better playability. Um, I remember when I discovered I was supposed to have a tapered cutter, which fit the cutter that I was reshaping peg holes with. I'm like, that makes so much sense. That does make sense. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like a tool to fit the thing you're trying to make. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. <laughs> uh, so that, 
dad's hobby turned into a store. And, you know, I went off to school, I went to college and thought I would never have any dealing with it, with this until I had a desk job for about a year and hated it and thought I would try to do this as well. So I lived about an hour away from my father. And so in my neck of the woods, set up a thing out of my house by this time. After a year. That is economy of motion, for, Rosie. That's great that you knew to get out of a cubicle after only a year. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I, yeah, I was not happy there and really wanted to prove myself, really wanted to prove that I was cool in some way. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go start my own thing, even though for years I had to build it out of my house and I cleaned houses on the side and I went and apprenticed at my dad's shop an hour away. And finally, you know, by then he had his own store. And then years and years later, mine turned into a full retail shop. I've got employees now. Uh, but I, as far as learning the repair work that would qualify you for the title mm -hmm. of Luthier, luthier. I, luthier, I've always been so hesitant because I did not have any of the traditional training. It came yeah. from books. It came yeah. from YouTube videos. It came from just screwing up. And I had a background learning how to make repair cleats for the insides of violins when they have cracks in them. We would make those out of popsicle sticks. And, yeah. and uh, you know, over the years we, we got better and better. And, um, Finally, you know, this last year, finally, I have the uh, the manpower at the shop where I can be away for a week. And I got to go to Oberlin and oh, and I met you and I met Jerry Lynn and magical people who. No, no, Jerry, that's not your cue. Just stay outside. OK, <laughs> not right now, Jerry. Okay. Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, Rosie. Magical people. <laughs> I know. Right. And this was an especially great workshop, too. Yeah. Yeah. And that was a complete flip to what I've experienced for the last 15 years of the fear of not fitting in that. Yes. But also the culture of secrets in this field uh, where you go yeah. to another luthier, but that luthier lives in your neighborhood and they're kind of cagey. And, and I've met some people that are not that way, but just as far as like an industry standard you don't tell your secrets when you know how to do a fine repair, when you know how to do really good adjustments, you keep that to yourself because and the, the basis of the being a luthier or a violin maker is knowledge that anyone you tell who anyone you tell what you're doing with your life mm -hmm. will have something to say about Stradivari's secret, right? We started with Omo and his family. Yeah. Have you run across that? It's, pervasive it's all yeah. it's all encompassing this field we keep secrets we don't tell how we uh yeah we don't we don't tell how we're able to accomplish this or that that fine repair nope you keep it to your, you take mm -hmm. it to your grave mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was just a wild contrast to uh, be in a huge workshop full of people who we're willing to tell you not only just 
a way to do a repair, but everyone was willing to share it. Well, you could do it this way, or you could do it this way. Like the freedom, freedom of knowing that there's several ways to install a new base bar. It's yeah. not just one. Now there's, there's lots of wrong ways to do it. <laughs> <laughs> so this yeah. is not like uh, uh, Anna Karenina, all happy families are happy in the same way. All unhappy families are, it's, uh, yeah, butcher that one. I, I know where you're going. <laughs> but you don't know the quote either. No. Good. <laughs> All so, right, I'm going to throw my, my base bar way to do it in, guys, okay. especially for cello. Clamp it up real nice and then release two clamps and run your plate closing knife with hot glue under that and then tighten those clamps again. Don't take it all off and start from scratch. No, close it as if it was a seam, guys. Just force it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there. Rosie, I've told you this many times. Mm -hmm. There's no such thing as not fitting. There's only not enough clamps. <laughs> okay. And Noted. this is the sort of thing you can look forward to at the Oberlin Restoration Workshop. It, Just ask Jerry Lynn. It, it's so true. <laughs> <laughs> so how did, how did Oberlin change the way you think about your career path? I have to tell you, a year ago, I was pretty checked out. I, right. you know, I was okay. I was happy to be an owner of a shop that did decent work for, you know, middle school to high school kids and thought, you know what, that, that scratches an itch. And then maybe I'll, I'll put a lot of passion into other things, mm -hmm. but to be around smart people who are giving so much effort, who are willing to help you out, uh, really changed my whole purview about this field and, and made me want to be better in a way that I had not wanted to in a long time. Amen. That's good stuff. <laughs> yeah. So thanks everybody who was in that workshop. It was really awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, did Oh, I wanted to mention one final thing, you know, uh, the culture of secrecy, there is one guy in my area and, and uh, he looks like a wizard. So those of you who know, know who I'm talking about, uh, Captain you know, wizard. yeah. And he did not believe in the culture of secrecy. I think he was sometimes KG because he had work to do. And I get that mm -hmm. when other people want to just like look over my shoulder and ask a bunch of questions, you know what? I got some deadlines. Um, but he was always kind and accessible um, and just told, yeah, yeah. But just told me this last year, this last year after knowing each other, probably like a dozen years, yeah. like, you know, I always felt hesitant about giving you advice because I never went to school for any of this. And I thought that was perfect. And that, I mean, I'm sure you had a different view of it before that that i mean yeah. to think that somebody that you were looking up to felt the same imposter syndrome that's yeah. uh yeah yeah i mean i i didn't i didn't graduate from school rosie mm. i did all of the co coursework i i finished all of the instruments and i was preparing to do my graduate work in salt lake and uh there was a shake-up in staffing and a fight between uh my my good buddy big p prayer and uh the person who was teaching us um, the 
the varnish and setup, getting ready for, for graduate work. And uh, that teacher canceled on all of the students who were headed towards getting to do their graduate, their master work. Um, and a couple of the students from that year managed to get their diplomas and w by getting approved to do the work. And one of them came forward, and I didn't know these facts till years later, but one of them came forward and said, hey, you know, I'm, I'm out of another country. I can't get another student visa. You can't do this to me. And the second person came forward and said, um, I've already had a career um, and I will sue you. And uh, they went ahead and, and went through. And it's, it's the sort of thing, I don't have any hard feelings. Um, mm -hmm. Politics are part of human interaction, but I made it my business to do well and try and hide that for years, actually, to, to not mention it, to not offer it up if it came up, because mm -hmm. I was worried about the things that get said behind a glass of beer mm -hmm. at the VSA convention, you know, about, oh, well, you know, he, he didn't finish the school program. Well, it's, all. it's easy to skirt because people ask, where did you go to school? Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, well, I visited there yeah. every day for years, but. So just to be clear, the story you're telling, those two people also didn't get their little piece of paper that said they were done? Those two people did, and okay. there were four others of us. And those four others um, are all still in the business, mm -hmm. I believe, um, and are successful um, by at least my my measurement of it. Um, it didn't stop us, but it, it it's just, it's interesting that your friend in Texas there held the same weight that mm -hmm. I, I did to it. This episode is brought to you by International Violin. For 86 years, International Violin has been supplying violin makers and violin shops with specialty supplies. When you call, you get Lori, Kenny, or Denny on the phone, and they are there to help you with whatever you need. Everything you need to build a violin from scratch, from tone wood to tools to varnish. They've even got instructional books and DVDs in case violin making was something you always wanted to try, but didn't know how to start. If you're listening, give them the promo code OMO, O-M-O, at checkout or on the phone, and you'll get $5 off your next order. You can reach them at internationalviolin.com or call them at 1-800-542-3538. That's internationalviolin.com or 1-800-542-3538. Don't forget that OMO promo at checkout for $5 off your order. Thanks for listening. What do we know about Oma Bono? What do we know about... Yeah. Uh, was, oh, the, was he like from the whole Strad's thing, first marriage? The whole thing that we are naming this podcast after. Yes. Omo Bono. He was from Antonio Stradivari's first marriage. And so little interesting fact about this guy, this Antonio fellow. So you mentioned we've got crazy church records and there's there's no account of how he's born. But our first yeah. record is of his marriage to Katerina. Wait, did I'm gonna say it? Nope, Francesca, different mm -hmm. person. Katerina's the his wife. So. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. Oh. Now the thing that we know about her is that she was uh, a widow, mm -hmm. and there's two accounts of how she became a widow. Uh, we definitely know how her first husband. Yeah, died. her first husband definitely. <laughs> He um, he died in a square and in, uh, in front of a church in Cremona. 
there's two accounts. One is that he committed suicide with, man, Ooh. I really hope I'm saying this right, Archibus? I tried to look it up. An Archibus? Archibus. Or is it Archibus? Le Archibus. <laughs> I'm going to get in trouble for that, too. Okay. Um, <laughs> so, it's like a big old... Uh, it's, uh, it's like a long-barreled rifle that they put on a tripod. And, but it ha- does it have a, a bow arm sideways, like a, it shoots a bolt? I, no, I think it's more like a traditional-looking rifle. Wow. Okay. Yeah, and some of them are as long as five feet. So uh, that's a big, big old, right? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how long your arms are, but that seems tricky. They're about five foot long. Okay, but to yeah. to flip a arquebus around and no, no, shoot I, yourself. So he's supposed to have killed. Yeah, was he was married mm. to the woman that became Stradivari's first wife? Did Strad mm. off this guy? No, 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 uh. no. It was. Are you I'm sure, sure. <laughs> I was there. No, okay, uh, good, Francesca's good. brother was also uh, accused of killing him. So oh, that's the second that's account. That's the second account. So one account is that um, maybe someone who was going through some mental anguish to just offed himself. Uh, another account yeah. is that something was going on and Francesca's brother said no. Like they were married two years and. Mm-hmm. And then he shot him dead in front of a yeah. church. And he had to flee the country for a while. But she had a dowry that she sued and she got it back from the family. Whoa. So, is that something that's done? Do you I, know? Like, do you just get it back if some. If, yeah. I, you know what? The fact that she had to sue is very telling. I But, but I don't know. Like, so this is. This is the. Do you think it's because her husband didn't know how to make violins? Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I d- don't know what kind of marriage they had, but whatever was going on, the brother was done with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, if you've got, so the first record, the record of suicide. That is what we originally knew. And then somewhere along the lines, a hundred years later, we're saying that it was a murder. So so yeah. this is purely speculation at this point. But I wonder we think. I wonder if to have that account of Antonio Stradivari and his fine family, he's his first record is marrying this woman. Do mm-hmm. we make her Really? That's the very first church record. Yes. Do we make it that she is a forlorn widow and there's there's nothing else to attach to that or is there family drama from the beginning wow so so the first time antonio stradivari comes into our view on this planet is as mr steel yo girl <laughs> yes <laughs> you gonna let that ride well we're we gonna edit that no, out? i mean there was like a little bit of time <laughs> lag it wasn't immediate I mean, mm-hmm. if we want to be salacious, we can we can mention that they christened their first child four months after their marriage. Wait, okay. Yeah. Wait, wait. No, no. We talked about this at mm-hmm. the same church, yes. right? So the the church oh. where husband number one was offed out in front of the square, they got married in that church. And then down the street is where he rented his first house. 
And so this is a, this is a Scorsese movie. I've seen. Yeah. This. So you're going to get bread in the morning, and you're just gonna go past the murder scene. You know, you're going. Oh, uh, you're walking, Francesca. You see this stain? <laughs> <laughs> this is your last husband. Yeah. Yeah. So I I don't know. Um, I don't know for a fact. I I'm gonna admit I wasn't there, so I don't know if okay. it was a murder or a suicide. But um, yeah. I have my personal speculation that they were just trying to hide hide some drama. And so they posed, they, they put that it was going to be, they put that it was a uh, suicide at first. And the truth was discovered later. Maybe something got uncovered. Thank you. And this was, this was Omo's mama. Omo's mama. Okay. Uh, I am going to try to figure out where I was talking from. So give me just a moment. Uh, from your diaphragm. <laughs> so that church was St. Agata. And then they mm-hmm. moved into Casa Nuzial. And that was Casa one block away. So, uh, yeah. so yeah, they have their first child, Julia Maria. Uh, mm-hmm. Five of their six children survived infancy, which is quite an accomplishment in the 17th century. Yeah, that's a lot. Uh, now, while Antonio was determined to be a violin maker, in his first 14 years, he only made 18 violins. And, and I'm sure there was a lot of work. Yeah. If, if, uh, if we're assuming he was working for the Amatis, mm-hmm. uh, producing those instruments. Yeah. That's the way it well, worked. I think but, you yeah. told me that one of your busiest years, you made 18 violins in one year. I did 18 instruments. Uh, three of those were cellos, and That's I, a lot more I feel like it almost killed me. Okay, but okay, but but doable. So he does that in 14 I, years, and yeah. so we have to again, we have to speculate. Was he getting some work from the Amati family? Um, Had to he be. was excellent at inlay work, and we think that he possibly could have been doing some work for a furniture maker in the um, in the okay. neighborhood. Yeah, and if if you if you look and see, um, you know, he made harps. Mm-hmm. His I should always say his shop. You know, this is this is a different mindset that we have in in the United States. There's a a feeling of uh, you know I am the only man who makes my instruments, and it's mm-hmm. it's an American. You you you're a self made man, mm-hmm. and the European tradition comes from a place of a system of a uh, of apprentice then journeyman. Mm-hmm then a masterwork when you finally aren't making things that your master puts his name on. Uh, the understanding is that it's more like a sous chef okay. than it is uh, somebody stealing other people's work to put their name on it. So Stradivari would have made sure that everything was up to a standard before it went out, but there's no guarantee or even expectation that he actually made many of the wood chips. So perhaps... He's moved into his own house because he got married, and so he's got a shop there. But that doesn't mean he wants to be the one. It doesn't mean that he's like a master luthier and having other people mm-hmm. apprentice yet. Maybe he's he is still in some ways apprenticing under other under other doing piece work. I can't talk yeah. under other people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> under other luthiers. Oh. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree completely. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm lost again. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I'm interrupting you hard. That's this time. okay. I will figure it out. 
Um, so we went from Agota. Yeah. Then we have Julia Maria. Mm-hmm. Then the second child. Well, okay. So then we've got. Well, I don't know what what order the children came in. I didn't write that down. But we do have well, after fourteen years, all of a sudden, there's the Hellier violin. Yeah. Oh, wow. Would you like to explain the physical appearance of this violin? Light breaks. <laughs> Over a fine golden varnish, chasing the edges. There are leopards, there are deer, there is scroll work, unlike anything seen before in the world of man. <laughs> Bits of shell, black mastic, definitely sweet, sweet jewels are chased around the edges of the violin. How can we imagine that this fine piece of scroll work? could also be a great violin. That was terrible. I love it. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Lots of inlay work. Lots yeah. of just very, very, very decorative. Very, like, the loudest, not, like, volume, but, like, the loudest as far as appearance of mm-hmm. any of his violins, right? Yeah. So, I mean, there there were other decorated violins of the same yeah. level, definitely. There's the Sunrise, the Hellier. There's a there's a decorated quartet. Um, I believe it's at the Smithsonian and not the Library of Congress, um, right near okay. me in D.C. Mm-hmm. And uh, they, yeah, they're remarkable instruments. So this is again theory. I suspect that that was his announcement that that this was something he put in the window to get attention. Like I am, I am really doing this all the way, and mm-hmm. his work really takes off after that. So noblemen, give me your commissions. Yeah. Look at what yeah, I I'm can done do. with whatever throwoffs the Amati family is too busy to handle. Like I, it's mm. it's time for me. Uh, so that's what I like about the hell year. But um, yeah. let's get back to Omo. So so he's got the two sons, Francesco and Omo Bono. And, you know, like I said, the other sons and daughters, they're doing other things. We got one that's going to be a cloth merchant. Uh, But these are the two that are the apprentices. They spend every day in the workshop with their father. So Omo's there. He's watching every scroll being carved, every F-hole being cut. We don't know the conversations that happen at that shop. We don't. Are you sure? We have to say we think. Uh, we don't know how he treated Omo versus Francesco, but we've got the words of those that will. One son gets everything, and the other yeah. is remembered for a mistake he made 40 years ago. And not even remembered for it, but reminded of it after dad yeah. dies. Yeah, notarized. <laughs> so it's oh, rough. Hey, yeah. Tony, take it easy on Omo. I mean, hasn't he suffered? It enough? gave me some flashbacks to some some things that's gone down in my family. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Omabono already when I entered the industry uh, almost twenty years ago, it was a he was a byword for mediocrity and the f up extraordinaire. I mean, the, at, at the violin making school of of America in Salt Lake, 
It was no longer part of the culture when I was there, but we still told stories about how for the first 15 years, there was an Oma Boner Award for the person who made the biggest gaffe that year. Nice. Nice. Well, let's talk about that trip to Naples. So when he was going off to Naples, he was 18. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you want to talk about any gaffes that you made at 18? (laughs) Please, no. (laughs) Uh, If Ryan Hayes tells you any stories there, it's a lot. Well, I was was perfect. I never did anything wrong. Uh, (laughs) But at 18, he's going off to Naples. Is he trying to figure out his own path too? Maybe... He's trying to not have to work in the violin shop. Maybe he's decided it's not for him. You know, something, maybe he's going to be a cloth merchant. So. And you actually taught me that he wasn't the cloth merchant. I had, (laughs) uh, I had correlated those two in my mind and I'm like, yeah, Omobono definitely like messed up a cloth deal. And that's why his dad hated it. (laughs) I'm perhaps. Yeah. Sure. I'll buy it. The will. So yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the backbone (laughs) Of this episode, I learned yeah. differently. So at 18, he's off on his own. His mom dies. And Omo comes wow. back home. And he never leaves again. He stays He never leaves. He stays again. by his father's side dutifully. Um he's he's not afraid to take on the responsibility responsibilities of the shop. And we don't have a lot of instruments that are by his hand, but we see that he contributed. He wasn't afraid to chase down a debt that was owed his family. Uh, He was a Mm -hmm. social guy, but never married. Neither of these sons married. There's an Omobono in the NSO with a very fine player. Mm -hmm. And it is beautiful. It is a remarkable instrument. It's a... The, the guy was no slouch. That That's part of the reason why I was so fascinated with the idea of having him for our, our theme, Rosie, yeah. is that here's a, a world-class violin maker at a caliber of everyone who's living today, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, and we crack jokes about his name all the time because he wasn't yeah. daddy. And the most recent auction, I believe it was... Around 2005, uh, mm-hmm. the Omo Stradivari sold for $370,000. That's not nothing. Yeah, <laughs> That's yeah I think we'd all love to sell something worth that much. Uh, I think that the reason he becomes the butt of jokes is because we put ourselves in his shoes. And, and we don't yeah. get creative about the kind of father that Antonio might have been. But we definitely yeah. think about what knowledge we could have gleaned if we had been there. If we had been in that shop, what kind of secrets would we learn? How great of a maker would we be? And, yeah. and so I think that yeah. a lot of people are just frustrated that, you know what? Five years after that will was read, both Francesco and Omobono were dead. And the legacy was done. And there were secrets wow. that were lost. And so I think that a lot of people hang uh, their perceptions of Omo on the fact that there wasn't a legacy that continued. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. So, you know what? I, I like the guy. 
I like yeah, him too. He's the guy for me. <laughs> oh, Mabono, you're the guy yeah. for me. You're my Don't guy. Don't listen to those other people making fun of you. We're, we're on your team. No, you're dead anyway. <laughs> oh, sorry, sorry. Or is he? <laughs> so, uh, this is the the world you and I have immersed ourselves yeah. in. Is one that calls our self worth into question every day on the workbench. And if we can't be kind to a man who did as good of work as Omobono, how can we be kind to ourselves, yeah. Rosie? Yeah. Yeah. What is that? Okay, can you answer that? Uh, <clears throat> Omo. It's it. Omo? Hey. Did you start this thing up? It's, it's Jerry. Jerry. Hey, hey Chris. Chris. <laughs> Are you? Uh, we can let you in, man. Are you still lurking outside? I've been out here all day. I know. I know. Did you get all of the squirrels cleaned out? Most of them, okay. but they're they're really persistent, and I've just got a bag of squirrels in my trunk that I've got to go drop off at the other side of town so they don't make it back here. <laughs> Gotta love a bag of squirrels, Jerry. Lynn. Lovely day for you. Yeah. So I miss hey, you, man. You know what? Uh, since you called. We've just spent all of this time talking a little bit about like how we got started, a little bit of our own insecurities, our experience with imposter syndrome. Do you? When do you get to call yeah. yourself a violin maker or a, a luthier? Do you, I know do you, you do have anything theory, that but... resonates with that. Yeah. All the time, I think you know. I, I don't think there's anybody in any field, let alone luthery, that doesn't experience imposter syndrome at some point. I, Wait, even... <coughs> I didn't, I really didn't catch that. What was that, Chris? Oh, okay. I have a cough. Oh, so even in the, the privacy of my own shop, there's days when I think that someone's going to come in and tap me on the shoulder and say, you, you're done. Get out. You've been found yeah. out. There's been a huge mistake, Mr. And Lin. Yeah. 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 Pa pack up, pack up all your stuff. And, and yet you're not I have worthy. had a, a tiny bit of experience of working with you and mm -hmm. I am done so much before you're done. <laughs> your level of making it perfect is amazing. So for you to feel that about yourself is pretty mind blowing <laughs> to me. Yeah. That's, we well, need people like Jerry Lynn as a mm -hmm. a rubric for if there's a meritocracy I, as a, a a level. I I, I, w I wouldn't go I wouldn't go that far. I, we need his godliness. Know, no, no, definitely not that. I uh, <laughs> you know I, I think that if you're happy with what you do, you're probably not oh, doing the okay. right job. So. Damn, we need to be ouch, miserable man. in this field. Got yeah. it. Okay. <sighs> I well, I hope not. I'm I'm you know, I'm trying to find a balance myself. But could and... it be said that the people who are not hat instead of cowboy are all really self abrasive in the way you just described? I mean, I I would say that I know people that are perfectly happy and tell everyone that they're the the cream of the crop, but the people that I really respect yeah. when we come to standards like we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Share that thing you just. Said. Oh, absolutely. The people whom I've met who are the absolute best in this business and in other fields, um, they don't 
they don't take praise well. They don't look at what they're doing as being great. They're just looking at it as I've got mm-hmm. so much more to do. I- and uh, the hard part comes when you, if you let the crushing weight of that drag you down, which if my wife were here to listen to me say that, she would be like, yeah. take your own damn advice. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's hard. It's really hard to try every day to do your best and then feel like you've come up short. Yeah, there's a phrase I keep saying to Rosie about having your self-worth yeah. on the bench with I will, the I will the say that more yeah. that I learn, the more I go home dissatisfied at the end of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. Your eyes will always outpace your hands. Jerry always says, your eyes will your hands. <laughs> well, as, as, as a musician, your ears always mm-hmm. outpace your hands. And as, as a luthier or bench monkey, whatever you want to call yourself. The uh, ladder. The, the ladder. Great. Uh, your your eyes will always outpace your monkey? hands. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Bench monkey. So, it is not monkey. too late. <laughs> It is pretty. It's my new line of cologne. So, Jerry, you called us on the Omo phone. That number Mm. is 240-686-5345. Yeah. I'm going to call us on the Omo phone, 240-686-5345. Do you have a story about feeling like you didn't quite measure up? Uh, We'd love to hear it. Omophone is not responsible for increased imposter Thank syndrome. Thank you for joining us for episode one. We're so happy to share this with you. Thank I you. I hope it means a lot to you as much as it's meant to both of us. All three of us. Yeah. Um, yeah, y'all have a great day. Thank you, Rosie. <laughs> Thank you, Jerry. Hey. Yeah. Stay safe out there. Okay. <laughs> Remember who you Remember are, who America. You are. <laughs> Please join us next time for Fakes and Forgeries. Our special guest will be London-based dealer and expert, Benjamin Hebert. Omo can be found at omopod.com. If you'd like to leave feedback or a suggestion for a show, we can be reached on the Omo phone at 240-686-5345. Invoke Sound plays our theme music. On the, the note of topics, Rosie, uh, uh, can we do a something Rosie is not prepared uh, for I'm segment? I'm ready. Yeah, let's do it. Are you sure yeah, you're ready? Yeah, I'm ready. <sighs> okay. So first, first, okay. I got a joke. Stick with me. So uh, a guy comes in and Joe Curtin's in the room and he still has his ponytail. And the guy says, Joe, who put the cat in the dryer? And Joe Curtin says, I give you two guesses. Okay. <laughs> okay, okay. So some people are going to love that, Rosie. <laughs> I got. I'm then... still waiting for them to love it. <laughs> uh, we're, we're, we're going out internationally, See, I, Jerry, I'm here. So. I'm here to be the anti-Chris. Mm-hmm. Oh. What's the, what's okay, the, the line I'm it. supposed to I say did, about uh, Joe? What, what was that declaration? What? 
Which one? No, you're supposed to. You're supposed to be like Greg Alf. Obviously, '80s TV show. Ahoy! I am. Ahoy.